The clock is ticking for Congress to pass a long-term agreement to fund the U.S. government that includes renewed aid for Ukraine. Given what we have left and given the pace at which we've been providing support, um, uh, you're talking perhaps um, a couple of months or so. Roughly. Plus, a deal to expedite grain exports has been reached by Ukraine, Poland, and Lithuania. Obviously, if Russia was not an issue, then Ukraine would have other transit options. But because Russia has been making things difficult for Ukraine, Ukraine really needs Poland to be able to move their product. And later in the program, the to-do list for Ukraine to address issues of government corruption as it looks to join the EU. Today is Wednesday, October 4th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. U.S. President Joe Biden spoke with the leaders of allied countries, the European Union, and the NATO military alliance on Tuesday about continuing coordinated support for Ukraine. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby, in a briefing to reporters, said supporting Ukraine strengthens our national security. President Biden made clear we cannot under any circumstances allow America's support for Ukraine to be interrupted. Time is not our friend. We have enough funding authorities to meet Ukraine's battlefields, battlefield needs for a bit longer. But we need Congress to act to ensure that there is no disruption in our support. Biden convened the call amid concerns that support for Kyiv's war effort against Russia was fading, especially in the United States, where Congress excluded aid to Ukraine from an emergency bill to prevent a partial government shutdown. As evidenced in today's call, we know that the world is watching. U.S. leadership has galvanized international support and has been critical to rallying the world. American leadership remains key to ensuring that support for Ukraine continues. And in a presidential series hosted by Georgetown University Institute of Politics and the Associated Press, former Vice President Mike Pence argued that helping Ukraine is the best way to check China's ambitions in the Asia-Pacific region. If Russia overruns Ukraine, that'll give a green light. That'll give a green light to China to move against Taiwan. And quite frankly, if we don't check the efforts by authoritarian regimes to redraw international lines by force, uh, the, the rest of the 21st century could look a lot like the first half of the 20th century. Meanwhile, the Pentagon has warned Congress that it's running low on money to replace weapons the U.S. has sent to Ukraine. I spoke with John Herbst, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and current senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, about what happens with Ukraine's effort against Russian aggression during the 45-day lapse in funding and possibly beyond. I believe that a 45 day halt to new assistance is quite manageable. There is some money that may wind up coming which has not been used from, from before. But Ukraine does have, uh, I'm not going to say they've got fully adequate stocks, but they have they have at least a little bit of uh, leeway. And it's also possible that some of our partners will step up as we work this out. So the immediate impact of this on Ukraine's ability to prosecute the war, I think, is, is small. There is a larger um, political impact, for sure. You know, Putin's betting that the West will not have the energy and the gumption to continue providing the level of support it has since the big invasion. And so he'll see this as a vindication of that belief, which is what makes this event, uh, the, you know, the inability, the decision not to, to provide additional funding, 
a real blow against American security. Talk a little bit about that, how how not funding Ukraine would impact national security here and abroad. Well, I have a an, an unusual take on the administration's policy uh, since the big invasion or even, you know, the months preceding it as well. From one perspective, it's impressive because we provided a substantial amount of assistance. We have rallied NATO and our partners to sanction Moscow in a serious way. And we have strengthened NATO in the East against Russian revisionism. We've isolated Putin and Russia. All very impressive. On the other hand, it's only been adequate to the challenge because, well, we have made sure with this policy that Putin cannot win. We have not made sure that Putin will lose or that Ukraine would win. We have not explained to the American people that vital American interests are at stake. And by a certain timidity in sending weapons, we are prolonging the war. And that is one of the reasons why this has enabled the populists, again, who don't understand how dangerous their policy preferences are for American interests, to make the case that this is a forever war, no clear outcome, and very expensive. If President Biden were to address the nation from the Oval Office and say that Putin is pursuing an aggressive foreign policy designed to weaken the United States by taking on NATO, by undermining NATO, they would understand that we have a policy of containing an aggressive Kremlin. And if our objective is to contain an aggressive Kremlin, well, the amount of money we're sending to Ukraine is, you know, what, 4% of the American defense budget? That's a great investment in American security because the Russian conventional military force has been uh, substantially destroyed in Ukraine. As you mentioned, you know, Russia Vladimir Putin, he's got other places in his sights. People Correct. who want to pull U.S. aid from Ukraine, some would argue, don't understand the devastating impacts for many other countries in the region. Talk of Vladimir Putin having its sights on the small Eastern European nation of Moldova. Well, not just that. From the standpoint of American interests, even more dangerous is the fact that Putin has his sights on the Baltic states. You know, you look at the two treaties that Moscow sent to the to Washington and to Brussels, in other words, the U.S. and to NATO, in December of 2021, before the big invasion, and the subsequent negotiations, they make clear they want to establish political control across the breadth of the former Soviet Union, and that includes our Baltic NATO allies. They've also, as treaties also make clear, they believe they have a veto on the defense policy of any former Warsaw Pact nation, another whole bunch of NATO allies. So we we are committed to the defense of those allies. Um, Ukraine is a large country, which is giving, with our support, Russian military help. It's much easier for the Russians to seize Estonia than Ukraine. And if we let Putin win in Ukraine, because we don't have the wisdom to see how seemingly by providing the amount of support per year we're providing, we are serving our own interests. We are making much greater problems for ourselves in the future. Would you say that means making the United States less safe? Of course, without a doubt. You know, there's been no great power war since the end of World War II. And a strong NATO is the principal reason for that. Helping Ukraine makes NATO stronger, makes the United States stronger and more secure. We're assuming this Continuing resolution, 45 days, no funding for Ukraine. It's right. all going to miraculously be worked out. But, you know, it would seem we may end up in the same place without agreement and enough votes to get funding for Ukraine going forward. How dangerous is that? You said 45 well, days is it'll be OK. But beyond that, everything we're hearing right now is that uh, the leadership 
the Republican leadership in the House, of course, with their Democratic colleagues and the White House, have plans to get the aid next time. I think that is the likeliest outcome. Not a certainty, but the likeliest outcome. But regarding the hypothetical of what happens next, um, I've just said that this episode has been a political blow against American interests, against sound policy. Clearly, a repetition, another 45 days come November, uh, would be a, an even greater blow. Um, not a decisive blow, but an even greater blow. But I don't think we're going to be there. I don't think that's not going to happen. All right. It's giving Russia a talking point, so to speak. A noteworthy thing, indicator, is the following. Uh, Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, mm-hmm. and I think Edja Wright, the former president, who's quite unhinged these days, have both said that Moscow is prepared to fight this war until 2025. I think it was actually a mistake for them to put it that way, because that's signaling their game. You know, they're going to fight like, like heck until they hope there is a political change in the United States. That's what they're banking on, because they know if Western support for Ukraine continues as it is, there's no way they can win. I see what you're saying, though. Instead of just giving them a trickle at a time, we just give them enough to just take care of it. Give them what they need to take care of it. That's exactly right. To break that land bridge to Crimea, which they don't they don't need to take Crimea to break the land bridge and give Putin a massive, a, a massive military and political defeat with that and make it extremely expensive and difficult for the Kremlin to supply Crimea with military and for that matter, civilian provisions. That was John Herbst, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and current senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. With the war of attrition likely continuing through winter into next year, the head of NATO's military committee, Admiral Rob Bauer, sounded the alarm about depleted weapons systems and ammunition supplies. Basically, we need the continued support from the political level because it's not only the money, it is also the actions in the nations that lead to more readier forces and the capabilities we, we need. And if you actually see that in the seven years before the war, the budgets went up already, but the industry did not increase the production capacity. And that has led to higher prices already before the war. And that actually has exacerbated by the fact that we now give away weapon systems to Ukraine, which is great, and ammunition, but not from full warehouses. We started to give away from half full or lower warehouses in Europe. And therefore, the bottom of the barrel is now visible. And we need the industry to ramp up production in a much higher tempo. And we need large volumes and the just-in-time, just-enough economy that we built together in 30 years in our liberal economies is fine for a lot of things, but not for, uh, for, for the armed forces when there is a war ongoing where you have peak demand signals like we saw in the pandemic with medical equipment. Speaking at a Warsaw Security Forum Wednesday, he urged the defense industry to boost production at a much higher pace. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Russia says its air defenses shot down more than 30 Ukrainian drones in a nighttime attack on border regions. Associated Press correspondent Charles de Ledesma reports. It appears to be Kyiv's largest single cross-border drone assault reported by Moscow since it launched its invasion 20 months ago. The Russian Defense Ministry hasn't provided any evidence for its claims, nor any details about whether 
there were any damage or casualties. It also said Russian aircraft had stopped a Ukrainian attempt to deploy a group of soldiers by sea to the western side of Russian annexed Crimea. Ukraine's pressing on with a slow-moving counter-offensive it launched three months ago, even as uncertainty grows over the scale of the future supply of weapons and ammunition from its western allies. I'm Charles Dilladesma. Officials say Ukraine, Poland and Lithuania have agreed on a plan they hope will help expedite Ukrainian grain exports. Russia dealt a huge blow by withdrawing in July from a wartime agreement that ensured safe passage for Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea, which has left it with more expensive overland routes through Europe as the main path for exports. I spoke with Christine McDaniel, senior research fellow with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University to get insights on the significance of the agreement. A little bit of background I think is helpful here. What started this grain dispute was apparently an influx of cheap grain into Poland. And, you know, if you're an importer of grain, you know, the proper response is, thank you very much, I'll take it. But, but of course, you know, if you're um, like a farmer, you know, and, and, and Poland has a lot of farmers, they were not very happy about this. And so, in the interest of Polish farmers, the Polish government decided to ban Ukrainian grains. And and the European Union, you know, they try to get involved a bit and because it doesn't look very good when right. some of your countries are having a you know right. public dispute over something like this in the midst of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Poland has been such a big really supporter of Ukraine that these tensions were sort of yeah. Huge supporter, huge supporter. In fact, Poland's ambassador to the U.S. even wrote a, an op-ed, I think, in the Wall Street Journal about Poland has been one of Ukraine's staunchest supporters. And by the way, you know, Poland has been telling the world, you know, don't get too close to Russia for years and years. No one listens. So, you know, you can't say that Poland has not been a strong supporter. In fact, one of the strongest. It's just, you know, from their perspective, they just don't want an influx of cheap, cheap imported wheat or grain because, you know, it's hard harmful to their farmers, right? You know, and that's their right. And now they're taking a dispute up with the WTO. But in the meantime, Poland said, you know, you're welcome to keep using our country as a uh, transit for your own exports. And Ukraine does use Poland as a transit. And then it goes down to Slovakia, Hungary, and then down through Croatia, right into the, the seaport, Croatia seaport there. So, and all the countries have said, you know, you're welcome to use us as a transit, but we don't want to be flooded by these cheap imports of your grains. And a couple of these countries are having elections and uh, farmers sometimes tend to be important constituencies for the candidates. So it's not clear, you know, how much of it was just political posturing. And, you know, after the election, then maybe they'll go back to the negotiation room and and work something out. I mean, Brussels got involved a bit and said, well, Ukraine, can you at least, can you, you know, can you look into this and, and stop letting your farmers ship large shipments of cheap grain to these countries, try to self-impose your own restrictions so we don't have to go through with this WTO dispute. And Ukraine agreed to do that. But in the meantime, uh, Poland has still said, well, we're still going to do the ban. So we're the world's just kind of like, okay, well, I guess Poland's going to have the ban. But Poland did say you can still use our country as for transit. So um, it remains to be seen, you know, maybe after the elections. So basically, the exports are going through Polish territory, but they are shifting from the Ukraine-Poland border to the 
Lithuanian port on the Baltic Sea? So they go through mm-hmm. Poland. Well, they kind of have to go through Poland because, you know, Belarus isn't really a great friend right now. Right. So they go through Poland and then from Poland, I guess, Lithuania uh, to the seaport. But but they also go through, uh, if they go north, I, then apparently they go up to Lithuania to the seaport. If they go down, then they're going through Slovakia, Hungary, Croatia. How significant is this agreement in terms of you know, the relationship, easing tensions, and also just expediting Ukraine grain exports? Oh, I mean, it's 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 great. It's 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 not trivial. I mean, Ukraine is about ten percent of the world's wheat production, so you know it's not trivial. You definitely don't want to lose that. And we saw what happened to grain prices when people thought we might lose it, right? So it's um, keeping that grain flowing is important and, and can help keep prices stable. You know, it's not the end of the world for world wheat prices to if Ukraine cannot sell in Poland anymore. It's just too bad that with Russia war on Ukraine going on, you know how this dispute has, the spat has come into public view. But on the other hand, you have to think about it like, you know, look, a lot of close allied countries have trade disputes and it's really not that big of a deal. Like if there wasn't a Russia war going on right now, this would not really be a big deal. And look at US Canada. We have trade disputes with them quite often. We talk it out. We, If we can't, then we bring it to the WTO or a panel with our existing trade agreements on US-Mexico-Canada. So on one hand, this is just a typical trade dispute where Poland says, please don't dump your cheap grains into our country. We're going to ban you for a while, but you can still use this as, as transit. And then until we figure out if you really have been selling less than fair value, if you will, or until you can commit to no longer doing this, we will ban you from selling your products in our country. Countries do this all the time. As far as transporting it, you know, there have been, of course, all these problems that Ukraine has had to be really resourceful given Russia's renewed Black Sea blockade. So it seems like a, a, a workaround that would certainly ease some issues. Any disruption to wheat shipments leads to an increase in global wheat prices, which can be quite damaging to food security, especially for developing countries. Grain prices today are still higher, much higher than they were before COVID. And then they just kept increasing, you know, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia has definitely been on a mission to destroy Ukraine's economy, which in large part, grain has a lot to do with. And we've seen a constant bombardment of targeting and destroying drone attacks, destroying grain warehouses and port facilities. How does something like that figure into their inventory and their, it's one thing to work around the Black Sea, but where do things stand as far as their inventory? We can be stored for uh, for a while though. For instance, this one Polish farmer was saying that they were just going to store their wheat for a few months, maybe into next year, hoping for prices to rise where they could get a higher price for it. So, of course, farmers like high prices, but, you know, everyone else likes low prices. And there have even been reports of some Polish people taking some of that cheap Ukrainian grain, you know, buying it on the black market. You know, you know at its core, this is a trade dispute. They have a way to sort it out at the WTO. They're moving forward with that. In the meantime, Poland said Ukraine can use their country as transit as they have been doing. So overall, you know, I think this is a reasonable solution and and it should not have a huge impact on wheat prices. Obviously, if Russia was not an issue, then Ukraine would have other transit options. But because Russia has been making things difficult for Ukraine, Ukraine really needs Poland to be able to move their product. Christine McDaniel. Daniel, Senior Research Fellow with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University.
A draft list of plans for Ukraine to address government corruption has emerged as the U.S. ramps up pressure on Kyiv to do more to institute reforms. I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv to find out more about what the list of reforms included. So, Anna, the list of recommendations for these reforms was not supposed to, the draft list was not supposed to necessarily be made public, but it was. And apparently there was a meeting that you attended to talk more about actually what was on the list or what is on the list. So we have this list of uh, top priorities for reform for Ukraine from the Washington, basically. And last week I was present at a meeting with the ambassador of U.S. here in Kiev. And she actually confirmed that, yes, this is uh, the list of like the draft list of certain priorities, so certain reforms. But it's like a recommendation. So it's not something, it's not a strict rule that Ukraine has to go through this list for sure. But this list includes all these reforms that Ukraine is already working on and that Ukrainian partners in Europe and in the U.S. require Ukraine to go through in order to move on to join EU and NATO. Also, this is exactly the list of reforms that Ukrainian society is waiting for uh, the government to implement, and especially the professionals in, in different industries uh, in, in, inside of Ukraine. So if we look at this list, we can see priorities for first three months, for, for three months, for six months, for a year, and for 18 months. And what's important to mention here is that, of course, the most important reforms which are required is anti-corruption reform, and particularly the justice system of Ukraine. So we can see the requirement for the strengthening of the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office, National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, also restoration of the assets and financial reporting, which was already voted by the Ukrainian parliament, also the reform of the National Agency for the Prevention of Corruption, as well as the completion of the restart of the High Council of Justice. So all of these reforms aimed at combating governmental corruption within Ukraine to to meet some of the concerns um, allies have about getting into the EU and having this stuff addressed. Are all the things that you just laid out, are those the U.S. recommendations or are those Ukraine's actual list of things they plan on doing? I would put it uh, as both because uh, basically this is what Ukrainian partners both in U.S. Uh, and in Europe have already discussed with Ukrainian officials and this already went public because everyone here in Ukraine, I mean the public sector in Ukraine and uh, society in Ukraine knows about this particular problems, uh, which are the main problems that Ukrainian state has. But uh, here we have a certain prioritization uh, of these criteria and basically stages which were... Are there any examples of how they're planning on going about it? So here inside of Ukraine, each ministry has certain tasks and President Zelensky particularly already announced that this big reformation should be done and some uh, of the reforms are particularly uh, goes under President Zelensky's responsibility Responsibility. And in general, we all understand that here in Ukraine, a lot is decided as well by the president office. So president office has quite a lot of possibilities uh, and um, control uh, within the country. So they also 
should take responsibility for these uh, reforms. And I think this is exactly what is expected, that those people responsible will follow this, you know, recommendations. Again, as we can see from the list, the most important is anti-corruption sector of Ukraine and justice sector of Ukraine, which has the most problems. Anna Chernikova reporting for us from Kiev. Thank you so much as always. Thank you. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world, 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.